when God assembled the army of Gideon, 32,000 men, to fight the allied army, the Midianite army of 135,000, the odds did not look very good for Israel. The Midianites had a four to one advantage. God didn't like those odds either, but for a different reason. And so the Lord told Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver the Midianites into your hands. Announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back. And so there were 22,000 Israelites who trembled. And now the new ratio was one Israelite to 13 Midianites. But then God still did not like the odds. And so he ordered another screening process for all of the soldiers there. He observed or had Gideon observe as they drank from the Jordan. Only 300 soldiers cupped their hands and drank were retained. And now the odds were one Israelite to 450 Midianites. Well, you probably know the end of the story, how God used those 300 to surround the Midianites in the night, blaring the trumpets and the flaming torches and causing the Midianites to fall into confusion and destroy one another. What does God teach us in that story? That he does not do things the way we do them. And the lesson is that it doesn't matter what the odds are against God's people. If God is for them, he will fight their battle for them. And he wants us to depend upon his strength alone. Well, we're going to learn that in our text today from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We are in this sermon series out of 2 Timothy called Guarding the Gospel in a Godless World. And Paul is writing his last letter from a Roman prison. He's about to be executed. This letter is his last will and testament to Timothy, his beloved disciple, his son in the faith. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And we've learned already that Timothy had a timid disposition. He was a fearful man, naturally, and he struggled also with health issues. And so Paul is writing this letter to encourage him, to challenge him in his calling. And last week we completed chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul encouraged Timothy in his sincere faith. That Timothy had a sincere faith that was passed down from his grandmother and his mother. And then he was to fan into flame the gift that God had given him of being a pastor. He was to rely on the Holy Spirit to overcome his fears. Paul told him not to be ashamed of the gospel, nor to be ashamed of his chains and his imprisonment. And he commanded him to follow his teaching and guard the good deposit that was entrusted to him. And then as you remember last week, he warned Timothy that some will be unfaithful. Some will deny the faith, abandon the faith, just as some abandoned Paul. But there was one, Onesiphorus, who went to Rome to minister to Paul's needs. He was a faithful friend to Paul, a faithful friend to Christ. He guarded the gospel just as Timothy was to guard the gospel and to be faithful. 
So now at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul exhorts Timothy to remain strong and to pass down the truths of the faith to others who will in turn teach. But this will require selfless suffering. So he gives us three helpful metaphors to describe this kind of suffering. So follow along as I read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Well, Paul has charged Timothy to remain faithful to his calling, to guard the gospel and to suffer for Christ. How was he to do this? Well, in verse 1, and we see in point 1, he communicates that he should guard the gospel through being strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. He says, you then, my son. When my dad was alive and we would talk, whenever he would refer to me as son, I would perk up. I would listen. When I was a child and he would call me son, it was usually because I was in trouble and he was correcting me. But later on, as an adult, it was never in a stern way. It was in an endearing way to get me to hear him, to get me to understand, to get me to know how much he cares for me and loves for me and is proud of me. Well, here Paul is giving Timothy a command, but it's couched in this language of a tender, affectionate father for his spiritual son. It's an appeal to his heart. We could learn a lot, couldn't we, from Paul in the way that we challenge our children, in the way that we challenge one another to encourage with familial love. Timothy was timid. He needed to stand tall. He needed to be strong. We've already seen how Paul encouraged him to do this in chapter 1 when Paul told him, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Well, here he says something similar. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the resource for us being strong in the faith is not to be found in ourselves. It comes from divine grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, when the Bible uses this term grace, it can mean one of three things. First, it could mean God's unmerited favor towards people who don't deserve his favor. Jacob was undeserving of grace, but God gave him prosperity nonetheless. The second is applied specifically to salvation. God graciously gives all of us who are undeserving 
and sinners, new life in Christ by grace through faith. And it results in the forgiveness of our sins and righteousness before God and the gift of fellowship with Him and eternal life with Him forever. We don't deserve this grace, this love, this salvation. We deserve wrath and separation from God. But the third use is what we find in our text today. It's the grace that empowers believers for good works. Not in order to earn favor with God. We have that already by His saving grace. But this is a strengthening grace. We've already received the grace of salvation. This is the grace that empowers us to obedience and good works. The verb strengthened is in the present passive imperative. Imperative means a command. And so he's commanding Timothy to let God act to make him strong. You see, God does not make us strong once and then leave us to struggle the rest of our lives. No, we grow weak repeatedly. And so we need this constant strengthening of God, of Christ. Now this term, in Christ, signifies our union with Christ, our spiritual union with Him. In Romans chapter 6 and in Colossians 3, Paul teaches that believers have died with Christ and they've been raised with Christ and we now live with Him. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And therefore, believers can progress in obedience by relying on the strengthening grace that they have in their union with Christ. But it is not automatic. What must we do to, to receive this strength? Well, the Lord has given us means for us to grow in this strength, to grow in this grace. He's given us the Word of God. He's given us prayer. He's given us the sacraments in the context of corporate worship and prayer and fellowship and service together. Well, then Paul points to what this strengthening will enable him to do in guarding the gospel. Point number two, he teaches Timothy to guard the gospel through entrusting it to the faithful who will teach others. Look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This grace empowers pastors, elders, deacons, all believers to pass on the truth of God's word and the gospel to others. See, Paul refers to what he has heard him preach and teach in the presence of other witnesses throughout the years that he has heard Paul teach. And he's implying here that his teaching was the inspired word of God. And it's not to be kept to oneself. We have an obligation to pass it on. But it's not just that. We need to make sure that it is passed on to faithful, faithful men and women who will in turn, teach it to others. So, part of the guarding of the faith and the guarding of the gospel is making sure that it is taught to faithful people who would also, in turn, spread it and teach it to others. 
Now, some believe this text is specifically or exclusively referring to pastors training up elders. And of course, it applies specifically to that situation. But I think that it's a general principle that applies to all believers and also to parents and their children. I spoke at the Young at Heart uh, lunch last week and I talked about this relatively new role that my wife and I have found in being grandparents. One of the most important roles for older saints and for grandparents is supporting Christian parents in passing down the gospel, passing down biblical teaching, passing down a biblical world and life view to the next generation. The Old Testament is filled with commands to do this. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78. George Barna, the research firm that studies religious trends in America, reported in a recent survey that only 4% of Christian parents are intentionally passing down a Christian world and life view to their children. This is what is involved in discipleship with regard to our children. This is what we must be intentional about in the church, passing down sound biblical teaching, especially the essential truths of the Bible, what it says about God's nature, man's nature, who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, and what have they done to bring us salvation. Paul says we're to entrust men who are faithful and able to teach others. Paul, if you'll recall, just wrote about deserters, faithless men at the end of the last chapter. Onesiphorus was an example of someone who remained faithful. And so we are to continue to emphasize the need for believers to be faithful, faithful and loyal to Christ and to carrying out the Great Commission. You know, churches sometimes can be guilty of measuring success by the number of people that come to worship or the number of people who are involved in programs or the amount of money they have in their budget or the size of their buildings. But here, God expects pastors and officers to lead the way in the task of discipleship, encouraging everyone to know and believe the doctrines of our biblical faith and to aspire to transmit it to others who will in turn teach it to others. This is one of the core tasks of the church that we are given. Making disciples, transmitting the apostolic deposit, teaching from God's word, those who will be faithful stewards of the word to teach others. This is how the church, practically speaking, survives and and grows. Well, next, Paul comes back to this theme of suffering. Suffering has been a theme in 2 Timothy. If Timothy is to guard the deposit of apostolic doctrine and the gospel, then he will have to be strong. He will have to entrust it to faithful men who will in turn do the same. And all of this will involve suffering. And so thirdly, Timothy was to guard the gospel through sharing in suffering. And so not to be obscure about it, he talks about what this suffering entails by using three metaphors. 
to describe this kind of suffering. First, he uses Paul's favorite metaphor, that of a soldier. He says in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Well, we've heard a lot about soldiering in armies, haven't we? Too much these days. The Ukrainian army and their courage, their suffering, their successes, resisting an army many many times larger and stronger. Well, you know what? We are soldiers of Christ. And we are in a battle, a spiritual battle. We're We're not fighting a physical battle, but we're fighting a mighty spiritual enemy. The devil and his demons. We are fighting the world. We are fighting our own flesh. And the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so we suffer as soldiers. We experience the attacks of the evil one. We experience trials and temptations that come along with being a soldier of Christ. And as we read earlier, we're to put on the armor that God has given us in Ephesians 6. We're to fight the good fight of faith. Paul refers to a number of people in his epistles as fellow soldiers. You are fellow soldiers. Fellow soldiers of Christ. And Paul extends the soldiering analogy further. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now we are called to be in the world, not of the world. To make a living. To develop relationships. To enjoy God's creation. To enjoy raising families. To be engaged in activities. These are good. Not bad in of themselves. But any of these things can become entanglements. They can hinder us from fighting this war and being dedicated to our commanding officer, Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul is talking about here is single-mindedness. The ability to focus on our mission and who we are pleasing. Paul puts it this way to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind And straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Soldiers have this single-mindedness. And soldiers don't expect an easy time. Soldiers expect that they'll have to sacrifice. We are sharing in suffering together. Paul told Timothy that his work was dangerous. Jesus summoned his disciples, to suffer as he did by taking up their cross daily and following him. And so we live each day armed and ready in this spiritual war. The other way that we will suffer is like an athlete. Look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Pastors and church leaders and all who live the Christian life are like an athlete in that they should compete to finish the race. Now, we don't run a race in order to earn salvation. We already have it. Christ ran that race for us. But we run the race of being sanctified and following Christ and becoming more and more like Him. Now, in any sport, there are rules 
that must be followed or you will be disqualified from competing in them. Just recently in the Olympics in Beijing, an Iranian skier became the first confirmed doping case and was disqualified. Then there was the controversy of the Russian figure skater who was tested positive with a banned substance. She could compete, but if she got in the top three, she would not receive a medal. And then there was a mass disqualification of the top five women ski jumpers. Why? Because they wore baggy clothes. Now apparently that was in the rules, and baggy clothes can cause a high jumper to float just a few more milliseconds in the air. So athletes must heed the rules of their sport. But what does that mean for a Christian to heed the rules? Well, I think it means we are to keep God's commandments. Now, we don't keep his commandments in order to earn our favor with God, earn righteousness with God. No, Christ did that for us already. We seek to keep his commandments because we have Christ in us. We have a new nature We want to be holy as God created us to be holy. So we're to live a life committed to his commandments in thought, word, and deed. And loving God with all our heart, mind, and strength means rejecting idols. Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves means denying ourselves. You know, we've all heard about high-profile pastors in recent years who have fallen into sin because they have not followed the rules of holiness and they have brought disgrace and harm to the cause of the gospel. And there are certain pleasures and pursuits that we are to deny ourselves in order to focus on Christ. Athletes, they have to be disciplined in their training and pastors and officers and, and, and all God's people are to be disciplined We deny ourselves certain things and we focus on other things. Spending time in God's word daily and in prayer. Observing Lord's Day worship and rest. Serving in the church. All this requires self-denial. Single-minded, wholehearted discipline is in order to receive the crown or the prize from God. Again, we don't earn it, we don't deserve it. But God blesses us with these rewards after we finish the race. Lastly, Paul uses the metaphor of a farmer to describe the suffering a pastor, church officers, and in general all believers are to endure in guarding the gospel. He says in verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Successful farmers are hardworking. They don't have the liberty to be idle whenever they want to. No, farming involves waking up really early in the morning, long hours, constant toil with plowing and seeding and tending and weeding and reaping and storing and selling and then completing the whole cycle again. There are many passages in the Scriptures, especially in Proverbs, that denounce the sluggard who fails to plow the field and plant the seeds in the spring and harvest in the fall. And farmers must be patient. Eventually they will receive the reward, the fruits of their labors. Sometimes we're primarily planting 
and watering. Other times we're doing the harvesting. Ministry is hard work. But eventually God causes the fruit to come. Paul says this hardworking will be the first that this hardworking farmer will be the first to share in the crops. Now, some commentators have said, well, this is referring to pastors and how they should expect to be supported financially by their labors. And I think that's, that could be true here, but I think it's also just generally uh, referring to all of us who are in ministry, pastors, officers, every believer who works in ministry should be able to experience the fruit of their labors, the first fruits. So we are to share with those who minister to us what a blessing they've been to us. We will see people come to faith. We will see people grow in their faith. That's a wonderful reward for those who are in the ministry of the church. Our labor is not in vain. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so Paul uses these three metaphors to communicate the kind of suffering that pastors and officers and teachers and all believers who serve in God's kingdom will endure. Now, it's very interesting to me how Paul closes this section in verse 7. Here we see him saying, point four, guard the gospel through thinking and reliance on the Lord for understanding. Look at the beginning of verse seven. Think over what I say. He's saying to Timothy and to all of us, we need to reflect and think about what God says to us in his word. Timothy was to think about how God strengthens him through the grace that's found in Christ. Timothy was to think about how he was entrusted with a deposit and he was to share it with others, entrust it to others so that they would also teach it to others. Timothy was to think about the suffering involved in guarding the gospel. See, all these metaphors communicate how we are to suffer and believers are to meditate on this, to think about these things. So that we might change. So that we might be conformed more to the image of Christ. So that our life priorities would be Christ's priorities for us. Then greater understanding will come. Look at the second half of that verse. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You see, we do our part. We meditate. We reflect on God's word. We pray for wisdom and understanding. And then, by the power of the Spirit... God will give us understanding. So we've seen how Paul tells us to guard the gospel. In what ways are we to apply these truths to our lives? How are we to change in the way that we think and act according to these truths? Well, let me give you four application points. Timothy and all believers are to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are promised continual strengthening as we face challenges in ministry, as we face trials and temptations and problems and discouragements. We are supplied with an ever-ending amount of grace to help us through those times. John says in John 1:16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Grace is always available to his people. But this is my first point. To be strengthened by grace in Jesus Christ, you must have received the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. You can't expect and you won't receive the grace of Jesus strengthening you if you aren't first a believer in union with him. You see, mankind needs God's grace because we're sinners. We're born with a sinful nature. We're born separated from God. We're born a slave to sin, a slave to the devil, spiritually dead. And God demands perfect obedience to his laws, to his commandments, and we fall short. But furthermore, he's also just, and he demands that every sin of ours be paid for in hell, be judged in hell. And so we cannot atone for our sins. There is this great debt that we amass that we cannot repay. But God is gracious. And he's determined to save his people and deliver them from hell and separation from him. And he did this through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God came to this earth and became a man. He took on human flesh and a human nature without sin and yet remain God in order to be our substitute to fulfill the commandments for us. He lived the Ten Commandments perfectly for us. And then he went to the cross to take on the debt of our sin and to pay that debt through his suffering, his bleeding, his dying on the cross. And then three days after his death, he rose from the dead proving he had victory over sin and the devil and death for us, proving he was the Son of God and that God the Father accepted his sacrifice for us. And you see, when God changes a person's heart and they acknowledge they're a sinner and they cannot save themselves and they turn from their path of sin and they rely on Jesus alone as their Savior and Lord, they are reconciled to God. They are united to Christ. They're declared righteous and forgiven of all their sins and they are given the gift of eternal life. And you see, with that union then that they have with Christ, they can be strengthened. They have unlimited grace to be strengthened in their lives. Well, secondly, secondly, we learned Timothy's job was to find faithful men and entrust them with apostolic teaching, with the gospel, so that they would pass it down to others. But this is also the job that we all have in discipleship, and particularly in parenting. And so my second application point is How are you intentional in passing down God's truth and the gospel? Are you praying that the Lord would help you to do this in your family? Parents, grandparents, all of us as church members, we heard these vows that were taken this morning. These parents who promised to, in humble reliance upon divine grace, endeavor to set before their children a godly example to pray with and for them, to teach them the doctrines of our holy religion, to strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then we as a church promised to undertake the responsibility of assisting them in the Christian nurture of these children. 
What role are you taking on in assisting other parents in raising their children? Are you involved in ministry in some way, either with adults or children, to support this process of discipleship? That's something that we need to ask ourselves. Parents, you need to ask yourself, are you making it a priority to intentionally teach your children the Word of God and the Gospel, praying with them, worshiping with them in your home and and at church, involving them in the ministries of the church as they supplement your efforts? Thirdly, ask yourselves, in what ways is God convicting you to have the selfless qualities of a good soldier, athlete, and farmer in your service to Christ? Paul says, if you are a believer, you will share in the sufferings of a good soldier, a good athlete, and a good farmer. So evaluate how you think about your life. Evaluate how you spend your time. What are your priorities? Where do you spend your money? Ask yourself, where am I lacking in the suffering that's involved in these different metaphors that are given of the Christian in your devotion to the Lord. Critique your life. And you know when Paul says share in the suffering, it literally means suffer together with us. Wouldn't that be a great church slogan? Come suffer with us. (laughs) But seriously, that is part of the Christian life. Yes, We're offering the joy of salvation, the joy of knowing Jesus, peace, eternal security, a relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's family, but it's also a life of suffering. Jesus had to suffer in order to be our sacrifice, and we have to suffer in order to become like him in this life. That's what we're called to. So pray more for these qualities in your life. And the best way that these qualities can become part of your life is to focus on Christ and who you are in Christ. He is your commanding officer. Look to Him. Look to what it means to be in Him. His life is in you. He exhibited perfectly these qualities of a good soldier, an athlete, and farmer. And as we look to Christ, as we live in Him, we will exhibit these qualities as well. Finally, Paul tells Timothy to think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, Timothy was not to skate quickly over what Paul had taught him. He was to go beyond a simple comprehension to a deeper understanding and experience of what he was being taught. And so my last point is, Are you spending time in deep thought about God's commands and relying on the Lord for understanding? We live in such a hurried culture. We have such a short attention span. We have so many distractions around us. Do you obey this command? Think over what I say. God is saying that to us this morning. Think over what I've just taught you in this passage. Make time to study it, contemplate it, pray about it. Wrestle to understand what God is saying and how this ought to apply to your life. You know, Sundays are great opportunities to do this. Perhaps right after lunch, 
you and your family or friends can spend some time talking about what God taught you this morning in Sunday school or in this sermon or what he's been teaching you in your devotional life. Ask him to give you greater understanding. You see, when we, by God's grace, do what God tells us to do in this passage, we will guard the good deposit of our biblical faith. We will pass it on to the next generation, which is our primary task as a church and as individual Christians. So may the Lord help us to be faithful for his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this challenge in our text. Thank you for the strength that is in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, give us this strength. Help us to be faithful, to pass on the truths of your gospel to the next generation. And Lord, help us to be faithful in suffering as a good soldier, a good athlete, a good farmer. Help us to have the qualities of Christ as we live in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.